So I'm going to try recording. Uh, just tell you my stuff. Um, I'm, my name, again, I've already said, my name is JR. Uh, my wife and I have been here three years. We came here from Missouri. And uh, I grew up in a Baptist church, and so I went to lots of youth conferences about the end times, and I learned all kinds of stuff about Revelation where they put up the big timelines. And, uh, you know, when the Left Behind books came out, I bought them all and read them and all that stuff. So I was in – I was sort of – I was sort of uh, hovering around the book of Revelation a lot, but I never actually studied it for myself. I just sort of like read things that people said about it. And uh, as I went through my schooling and was training to become a minister, I actually sort of started edging closer and closer to the book and spending some more time in it and, and actually then started trying to read it on my own and, uh, and try to understand the book on its terms apart from what people had always said about it. And uh, that was when the book really came alive for me in a whole different way, which we'll, you'll start to see the, uh, a little bit of that as we move through this. And so my goal for this study is not necessarily to convince you of any one particular reading of Revelation, though you'll hear mine and we'll probably interact with others as we move along. What I'm actually excited for is that you would become a confident reader of this book. Uh, in my experience as a pastor, it seems like this is – maybe other than Leviticus, like the least read book in the Bible, and for totally different reasons. Most people are bored by Leviticus, so they find it just sort of confusing. I find a lot of people are scared of Revelation, or they're intimidated by it. Uh, and rightfully so. I mean, you flip it open, and you've got seven-headed beasts and dragons and swords and all kinds of... It sounds more like a Lord of the Rings novel than something that you would expect to be in the scriptures. And so... Uh, that, I understand why that is. Uh, my goal for this study, again, is to help you become comfortable with the text, uh, give you the tools necessary for you to read it and interpret it uh, on your own with, with, with your uh, people around you that, that you trust and that you read the scriptures with. And so, again, as we go through this, there's going to be a lot of interaction. We're going to be talking through text together, and I think it's going to be a really, really fun class, and hopefully uh, no one gets any nightmares from it. So, uh, Any questions before we move forward? Okay, cool. Uh, let's talk about reading the Revelation then. First of all, um, there do tend to be assumptions and things that we bring to a text. And, and like I said, for me with Revelation, I had a whole bunch of stuff that was put in my head by other people that weren't necessarily even about Revelation. And somehow it seemed that the more I learned about people's views of Revelation, the less I actually read the book for myself. And so what we're going to try to do in here is not start with assumptions about uh, what is in there, and we just want to read it for ourselves and talk together about it and, and discern as clearly as possible uh, what the text is saying. One of my favorite principles of interpretation, and uh, I won't embarrass the person that's in here, but I taught a class with someone last semester uh, about how to read your Bible, and this is the way he put this principle of interpretation. It was this. Um, the text, whatever text we're studying in the scriptures, can never mean what it never meant. Okay. And what that means is uh, what we need to do as faithful interpreters of the scripture is, is discern as best as possible what the original intended meaning of the text was. You know, when the first person, when God inspired the first person to write it and they wrote it down and then it was given to the first readers and hearers of that text, what did it mean then? And what was God trying to do and say through that text to those original hearers? Because if we can understand that, then we can begin to understand what it's saying to us today. Uh, but, but we always want to start with the original, uh, the original audience, the original author, the original inspiration. So 
Uh, and the reason that we want to do that, and this is what I think is really interesting about the book, uh, for those of you who don't know a lot about how our, our scriptures came together, there was there was never actually like a church council or an official meeting or something like that where we decided what books are officially in the New Testament. You know, when, when Jesus came and ministered and died and rose from the dead and then ascended into heaven, the church was just here, and we had all of these people who had encountered Jesus and who had been changed by him and who were experiencing the resurrection. A lot of them wrote stuff. I mean, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of documents in the early church that were written by people who knew Jesus or who knew his disciples, and they didn't make it in the Bible. Right? I mean, there's tons of those. There's the Gospel of Thomas that you've probably heard of. The Gospel. It seems like every Easter, if you notice that, some new Gospel comes out, and they're like, oh, this completely changes everything. And then a few weeks after Easter, they're like, eh, it doesn't really change anything. Um, that's because there's all these other documents. And the reason the texts that we have are in the New Testament, the only thing that they all have in common is that when the early church was worshiping, and they were passing these different, you know, they were passing the Gospels around. They were saying, hey, read this story of Jesus. Hey, read this story of Jesus. Or, hey, we got another letter from Paul. Like, pass it around to some of the other churches. Or, hey, we got this letter from, we're not sure who it's from, but it's a really, really good letter. The only thing that they all had in common was that when Christians used them in worship, all across the known world at the time, the spirit was moving in those churches, in those worship experiences, through those documents. And so over the course of several hundred years, the church, by experience, and specifically by the power of the Holy Spirit, formed these texts together. And they said that, that's when they said, you know, the Gospel of Matthew is in the New Testament. It is scripture. It is inspired. The Gospel of Thomas is not. You know, this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians is in the scriptures, this letter that Paul wrote to the Laodiceans, which we know about, which we don't have anymore, is not. You know, and, and, and there was this process of discernment. So what we have in the New Testament is what the Holy Spirit has given to the church to, to help us grow and to help us worship and to help us become more like Jesus. And so when we're reading the Revelation, that's what we're attending to. How does this make us more like Jesus? How does this shape our worship? How does this help us have a clearer vision of what God is doing in the world and how we can be a part of that? Does that make sense? Okay. I think it's kind of a cool thing. For Usually when people hear that, you know, we never rubber stamped the New Testament, they get worried. But, like, I'm, the Holy Spirit hasn't needed our rubber stamps as far as I've ever known. So, uh, <laughs> um, so let's begin. Uh, you can open scriptures. You can read it on the screen. This is the first three verses of Revelation. And we're going to let the book tell us what it is. Okay, it opens, uh, it opens with a description of what we are about to read. So I'll, I'll give you a couple minutes to flip there or click there or however you're going to open. It's at the end, if you uh, are not sure where the book is right before the book of maps. <laughs> so, Revelation 1, beginning in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Uh, now, the word revelation is a Greek word, apocalypsis. Okay, it's where we get the word apocalypse. 
And that word, actually, Revelation is a very good translation of it because the word apocalypse doesn't mean giant explosions and the end of the world. It means to unveil or an unveiling, to reveal something. That's why it's called a revelation. So if you put this in the text, it helps a little bit. The revelation or the apocalypse is the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Uh, now, the an apocalypse is a particular kind of literature. Uh, just like there are tons of gospels, there are actually a few dozen apocalypses, and they were written by Jews and then by Christians, probably starting about three or four hundred years before Jesus was born, and then it was sort of a, a trendy kind of uh, literature, and it lasted until probably uh, two or three hundred years after Jesus was born. So for around six hundred years, this was just like a genre of literature, sort of like science fiction. You know, uh, we didn't really have science fiction until like the I don't know what, the 20s or something? I'm not sure exactly when. But uh, now all of a sudden, science fiction is a genre, and you know about it. And if you're reading a book and aliens show up, you're like, oh, I'm reading a sci-fi novel, right? Uh, Apocalypse is sort of the same way. It's a specific genre of literature, and there are lots of them, and they're all weird and crazy. Uh, there's an apocalypse of Adam, an apocalypse of Abraham, an apocalypse of Peter, an apocalypse of Paul. There's, there's lots and lots of these uh, books. And the Revelation is the only one of them that that is in our scriptures. So there, again, the rest of them, though many of them were even written by Christians, they weren't considered scripture. They weren't included in our New Testament uh, or in our Old Testament. So uh, before we get going into Revelation, because it tells us right out of the box, this is an apocalypse. This is, this is a revelation of Jesus. So we need to ask, well, what, what is an apocalypse? And I put on your notes a nifty $20 definition of this. Uh, it's, this is... It's a ridiculous thing. We're going to break it down and go through it. Okay. So an apocalypse is a genre of revelatory literature with a narrative framework in which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being to a human recipient, disclosing a transcendent reality, which is both temporal insofar as it envisages eschatological salvation and spatial insofar as it involves another supernatural world. I'm not sure why they felt that had to be one sentence uh, or why they had to use so many big words, but. That's sort of like the textbook definition of what an apocalypse is. Let's break it down a little bit. Okay, first of all, it is a genre of revelatory literature within a narrative framework. That means it's a story. Okay? That, I mean, that, if you cut through all of that, it's a story. That means things like plot and characters matter when you're trying to read this book. You need to pay attention to those things because they affect the meaning. And we'll be talking about all of that as we move through the book. Second, it's... Uh, a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being to a human recipient. All it means is some something, usually it's an angel, comes down and finds some dude and is like, hey, i got to tell you something. Okay, so that's, the, that's, that's how the story always starts. Right? Some guy is just minding his own business, and then all of a sudden an angel appears and is like, i got important stuff to tell you. And then the guy usually goes on some kind of crazy trip. Um, it's a transcendent reality, which means that it's something that we don't usually see. And you'll see this all the way through the revelation that's in our Bible, okay? It means that there's there's something going on, there's stuff going on in the world, but that's not really what's happening in real life, and the revelation is going to show you that. It's going to take you to this other place and disclose the secret hidden reality to you, okay? It's temporal. It's a temporal story, which basically means that a revelation is about how God is rescuing God's people, 
Okay, it's a real world kind of salvation. So in the Jewish apocalypses, it was usually about how God was going to restore Israel and what God was doing behind the scenes to make that happen. And a lot of the Christian apocalypses, it deals with Christ's second coming and things like that. Okay, but it's, it's about God rescuing God's people. And then it's spatial and, and it involves another supernatural world. Again, there's usually some kind of trip. Usually they, they at least go to heaven. A lot of times they'll also go to like the after the, the underworld or the afterlife in some way and they'll see a bunch of stuff. Um, if, you're, if you're ever bored, get on Google and just type in like apocalypse or apocalyptic literature and you can find a bunch of these for free on the internet and you can just read through some of them. They're, they're all really crazy and weird. Uh, so back to the original definition. The short version is this. John, uh, Jesus in Revelation comes to show John what God is doing behind the scenes to rescue and restore creation. Okay, that's essentially what's happening in this book. Jesus comes to show John, who's our author, what God is doing behind the scenes. We can't see it, but God is doing something behind the scenes to rescue and redeem God's people. Okay, and Jesus has come to let John in on it, and then John was kind enough to let us in on it. Okay. Hopefully we're not going to have any more big, ridiculous words. Any questions about that definition? Okay. So when Revelation tells us it's an apocalypse... Oh, let me... Okay, when it tells us it's an apocalypse, that's what's going on. And uh, I want to show you one of my favorite movie clips to explain this, and it shows you what the power of unveiling and showing you what's going on behind the scenes is. So take a look at this. You'll probably recognize it. Oops, sorry. Okay, so let's talk about that scene a little bit. At the beginning of it, I think it's either you can tell that they're terrified of Oz the Great and Powerful, right? I mean, you can see they're, they're all shaking a little bit melodramatically, uh, especially when Dorothy keeps talking back to him, and then he keeps, you know, do not be, you know, be grateful. Uh, and, then, and then as soon as Toto 
pulls back the curtain, it gets immediately comical, right? Instead of being scared, instead of being nervous for the characters, you're laughing. You know, especially when he looks and he's like, pay no attention, and he's like closing the curtain and trying, but the, the, the spell is broken as soon as you see what's really going on behind the curtain. And that is what apocalyptic literature attempts to do. It takes some, uh, it takes some bad reality, which for the people of God, especially in the years that Apocalypse was popular, was persecution. You know, the Jews were living under the heel of various empires. Uh, Christians were being persecuted in the first century. And it, tra- it, it pulls back the veil of reality and shows you what's going on behind the curtain. And then the idea is once you see the real story, then you have what it takes to live faithfully. You have what it takes to, to um, be faithful to God and to be a child of God instead of compromising with the culture around you. Does that make sense? Okay, and again, you'll see this over and over as we move through uh, the text. You'll get a little bit tired of going back and forth between what we see is going on in the world and what's really going on behind the curtain, and then back to what we see is going on in the world and what's really going on behind the curtain. And then back to what we see what's going on in the world. And, then what, you know, and, and, and you'll see that it's just a constant back and forth between those two realities. Um, now, I, I want to ask this, uh, sort of as a rhetorical question. If... If John wanted to communicate that message to us, hey, just be, you know, be faithful, don't compromise, don't give in to the pressures around you because God's going to make everything okay in the end. Why didn't he just write us a letter? Why didn't he just do what Paul did? Or even write us a more straightforward story like what we get in the Gospels. Why do we have something uh, like the Revelation? And to answer that, I would like to show you some political cartoons. And you have versions of these on your worksheet, so I'm going to put the, the color versions up here. So don't worry, I picked one from each side of the campaign, so uh, we can be strictly nonpartisan. But someone tell me what's going on in this political cartoon, this first one uh, with the rhinoceros. Someone interpret it for me. Interpreting it doesn't mean you agree with it, just tell me what it says. Somebody doesn't believe he's a true Republican. Right, and he is who? Okay, Mitt Romney, presidential candidate. And so you have this rhino who's not actually an elephant, dressed up as an elephant. Elephant, of course, means GOP, Republican Party, right? Okay, anyone totally confused by that political cartoon? Okay, let's go to the other side. Here we have an enormous man eating giant bags of money, and we have some talking animals at the bottom. Someone tell me what this one is about. What's that? Okay. And what's the what's the take of the cartoon? What's it trying to say? Okay. And this is criticizing, right? Criticizing his position. Now, again, is that does that take a lot of uh, head scratching on your part to interpret? Okay. Even though they're talking animals. Why? Sure. Because they're symbols that we're familiar with, so we don't have to think too much about a donkey and an elephant talking. That makes a connection for us because it's something that we're used to seeing. Okay. Good. Yeah, these are symbols you know, right? You know what a donkey and an elephant are. And beyond that, you know what a political cartoon is, right? You know, you can, even though these aren't the same art style, 
you can look at both of them and you can say, well, okay, yeah, they've got some differences, but they're both political cartoons. You know, I know what a political cartoon is, I, and I know how to read a political cartoon. You know, even if you couldn't really put into words how you're supposed to read it and the rules of reading a political cartoon, you, you can. You can just do it because you've seen them, right? All right, let's try a couple more, a little bit harder. How about that one? Okay. They're mad at each other. Okay. Maybe. Anyone else? And the bear of China. Okay. <laughs> Good. Yep. And Brazil is the toucan. So we know that there's some kind of relationship going on, right? Maybe it's that they're supposed to be friends and they're not. Uh, the article that I actually pulled this from said that it's interesting that Brazil was sort of choosing between China and the U.S. as a model for government. And even though they don't want to make it look like they are, they're becoming more and more like China. Okay? And so with that information, we're like, oh, okay. That helps. <laughs> right? Maybe. How about this one? This one's way hard, partly because it's old. And I couldn't get a great picture of it. Okay. Has to do with World War II. Very good. Uh, that anyone want to guess? Or you probably can't read it, can you? It's German, and it says essentially the translation is this is the way they're making Europe free. Yeah, what's that? Very good. Yes. Now this is a Nazi cartoon. Okay, and it was produced towards the end of World War II. And it is demonstrating that from their perspective, the Allies are bringing freedom to Germany by killing everyone. So it's pictured as this big ugly troll with, Jew with the Jewish people, of course, at the head. Right? Okay, but that one was a lot harder for us to interpret. Why? Okay. Yeah, we're not familiar with the context. Some of us didn't know German. That made it harder. <laughs> right? <laughs> But as you begin to learn these clues, the meaning starts to become more apparent, right? Okay, well, I, what I want to suggest is that this is exactly how revelation works. The reason that it's so hard for us to read this book and to understand it is because we are 2,000 years removed from the context. Okay, all of these symbols that are used, all of these animals and these, uh, there's even some like propaganda kind of slogans in there. We don't, we don't understand them. We don't see them. We miss them. And because of that, it makes the book really, really hard to read. Like if you tried to give those first two political cartoons to someone from China or Brazil, they'd probably say, I'm not really sure what's going on here. Try to imagine someone who has no, they're not an archaeologist or anything, but they just live 3,000 years in the future, and you hand them to those, they'd be like, those silly people back in 2012 thought animals could talk? Like, what kind of primitives were they back then? Like, I'm surprised that they could even do anything, right? But we know, well, no, that's not what it's about. We know that these were a way of telling stories and a way of communicating. Now, what's, what's the benefit of a political cartoon versus an essay? Essays are long Good. Okay. And even people who can't read 
it. Yeah, good. There's several good points in here. One is it's a whole lot shorter to look at a political cartoon and get the argument than it is to read an essay, right? I mean, it takes a lot less time to process because it's, it's visual. Um, another thing is that it apply, it, it's more accessible, right? What else? What are some other reasons? They're more fun, right? I mean, honestly, yeah, right? I mean, even if you disagree with them, you're like, oh, okay, that's pretty clever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and actually, too, there's some really interesting studies about how things that are visual affect a different part of your brain. Uh, a picture, I mean, that's that's why we have print advertisements, right? So, uh, so what's interesting about the revelation is how visual it is. And and next time you're on Google, get on Google Images and just type in Revelation and then a random passage. You get some really uh, any passage in Revelation, you can find tons and tons and tons of pictures because it's it's such a visual book like it, it just almost demands to be reproduced in some way and we'll, I'll show you a few of the pictures as we uh, all every week as we move through I'll have a lot of pictures of that kind of stuff uh, it's it's really really interesting so so again back to the back to revelation 1 1 through 3 this is a revelation of Jesus Christ okay that means it's both Jesus revealing it and it's something that's being revealed about Jesus. Jesus is who is being revealed to us. Okay? Which God gave him, God gave Jesus this revelation to show his servants, which is us, right? What must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who testified to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are the ones who hear and keep what is written in it for the time is near. Okay, so what we want to do in this class is we want to do as good a job as we can as putting ourselves in the mindset of that original audience. You know, if we were hearing Revelation, if John, we'll get into a little bit of the historical context in a second, but if John had just sent this to us and we were in one of the seven churches, uh, what would we be hearing? What would we be thinking? What kinds of things would spring to mind because of this? And what did it mean for us? What was it asking us to do? Because then, once we understand that and once we can do that, then we can have a really good conversation about, well, what about us? What does this mean for us? Where does, where does this hit the ground for us today? How does this call us to be faithful in the midst of an unfaithful culture? Okay, good. Uh, any questions? Yes, Mike. Yeah, there's two words in that section that really kind of stand out to me. Okay. Soon and the other one is near. Yes. But it seems to be out of place. Because <laughs> it's 2,000 years old? Yeah. We'll talk about that. Good, good observation. Very good. Anything else? All right. Let's talk about some history. Uh, let's give you, this is, uh, this is introducing you to the people that we're going to try our best to think like. Um, Revelation uh, chapter 1 verse 4 begins a very normal, customary greeting like you'll see in any of Paul's letters, like you'll see in a lot of ancient Greek and Roman letters. So I want to read to you and kind of talk through the different parts. Uh, in any ancient letter, the first person to be identified as the author. So we have John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Okay, author and recipient. We know it's John. We don't know who John. John was about as common a name back then as it is now. So all we know right Right at first, his name is John, and he's writing to seven churches in Asia, which was a province in the Roman Empire, not an entire enormous continent with 50 billion people on it. So uh, this is the Roman province of Asia, and he identifies seven churches that are in this province that he is writing to. Okay, And he'll, he'll identify them more in a minute. Uh, 
Grace to you and peace from him who was and or who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So a nice Trinitarian formula there. And then he says grace and peace to you, which is a good common uh, greeting. You see that in Paul's letters all the time, right? Grace to you and peace, grace and peace to you over and over and over. So then the next thing that we would expect in an early letter is a prayer of thanksgiving. And that's what we get through the through verse eight. To him who loves us and frees us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And we get this interesting little tag. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. On account, on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then here we finally get a little bit of introduction to who this is. I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the persecution and the kingdom and the patient endurance, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Okay. So, a little bit of background information on who these people are, when they were living, and all of that. First of all, when you work through the whole book and you do all kinds of archaeological research and all that kind of stuff, uh, most scholars date Revelation to the end of the first century after Jesus was born uh, during the reign of a Roman emperor named Domitian. Domitian. Uh, So somewhere around 95 is probably the date. Uh, Domitian allowed Christians to be persecuted during his reign, but it wasn't super, super widespread. In in fact, about a generation earlier under Emperor Nero, who we're going to talk lots more about during this class, uh, there was a much more widespread persecution. Nero was, most people today think that Nero is like clinically diagnosably insane. And one of the things that he used to do, for instance, was uh, he would crucify Christians and then light them on fire and then they would light his garden parties. Uh, I'm not sure who attended these parties or how they felt about that, but it's really gruesome and grotesque decor. Uh, But it was what uh, Christians were easy to blame. They were really small religion. They were really new. And so uh, Nero was crazy. He liked to pick on people, and he picked on the early Christians a lot. So actually under Nero's reign, the persecution of Christians was probably worse than it was under Domitian's reign, though Domitian was certainly no friend of the church. And so there were pockets all over the Roman Empire of persecution. Uh, and this particular area was one of the places that Christianity was the strongest in the, in the world at this time. So it's really not surprising that there was some persecution going on here. And we'll be able to see as we get into the letters next week that in, in various cities there, was, there were some different degrees of persecution. Okay, so we, I mean we know what's happening. You know, at least one Christian in this region had been martyred. Uh, but again, we, just, we don't know I, all of the details. Uh, so let's talk about who this John is. Uh, there are lots and lots of Johns in the New Testament. Uh, maybe not lots and lots. But again, the, like I said before, the name then was about as common as it is now. And so uh, traditionally, the church has identified him as John the disciple. But there's actually not any real good evidence to identify him as any John in particular. Uh, that's just sort of, they sort of lump this book in with the Gospel of John and the letters of John, and then they also make some assumptions about the fact that that would be John the Disciple, uh, and 
we don't actually know who the author was. We all, again, all we know his name is John, and he lived in this area of the world, and he was a prophet. So what we do know about him is what he tells us in here, which is several things. One, uh, he was a leader in this early church. Okay. Two, he apparently had the spiritual gift of prophecy. We know that because in, uh, in verse 10 he says, I was in the spirit, which is a uh, way of saying that he was prophesying. Right? He was worshiping on the Lord's day, and he heard a voice like a trumpet behind him. So this vision happens while he's worshiping on this island. Okay. He later tells us that he was on the island of Patmos, which is this itty-bitty little rock. Uh, today you can go visit it. There's a monastery there dedicated to this John. And uh, you actually they actually don't have any fresh water there, so they have to take fresh water by containers over, uh, and, and that's how the, the whole island has any fresh water. So you can imagine, if that's what they do in the 21st century, how good life was there in the 1st century. Uh, but that's where John found himself because he had been persecuted. He says that he was there because of the word of the Lord, and that's all the information we have. We don't know any of the details about his persecution other than that he was a leader in this early church. He was apparently arrested uh, for, and for some reason for, for following God, and then he's ended up on this island. And so he, while he's there, he's worshiping at Sunday, even though he's physically separated from his congregations, he's still worshiping with them in spirit. And then he receives this vision. He receives this apocalypse, this revelation. He hears this voice behind him. I mean, you know, you can imagine it, right? He's standing there, he's worshiping, and he hears the voice from behind him that's like, Start taking notes, kid. Here we go. Right? Write this letter to the seven churches. And then he lists the seven churches out. And I don't know how clear this map is, but you can see there's little church things. Uh, we actually know that these churches were on an ancient mail route. And so, again, essentially what would happen is John would have mailed this letter and then would have gone from church to church to church, and they each would have taken their turn reading it. And then if they could afford to, they would have it copied, and then they would send it on to the next church. So that becomes especially interesting as we get into next week, all of the dirty laundry that John airs in the letters. And you can just imagine you're reading it and then being told you're supposed to pass it to the next church and be like, maybe we need to edit this a little bit before we pass it on. Uh, (laughs) um, Now, um, again, we don't know a ton about these individual churches, though next week we'll talk more about the backgrounds of each of the cities. Uh, But particularly, and we're going to talk more about this in a few minutes, particularly the thing that they faced was something that's called the imperial cult. And it was something that Caesar Augustus established. He was the ruler of the Roman Empire when Jesus was born. And it's essentially worship of the state. Okay, so this is when the Caesars would crown themselves as gods and they would have monuments and statues built to themselves. And they would expect, and basically what Rome said was, listen, We don't actually care what dumb gods you worship. Do whatever you want, as long as you also worship Rome. So, uh, again, you can have whatever temple you want. You can make whatever sacrifices, whatever god you want. We don't care as long as you do our stuff too. And so that became a huge issue for these early churches. What do they do with the imperial cult? Do they stick it out? Or do they compromise? Do they stay faithful to God? Or is it even a big deal? Can you just like, you know, go through the motions and just not really mean it when you're at the imperial temples? As long as you mean it in your heart when you're at church on Sunday. And, and again, we'll see lots more of this next week as we get into the seven letters. But, but the core issue that was facing these seven churches, and they all responded to it differently. 
and that's what this whole book is about, is how do you stay faithful to God in the midst of an unfaithful culture? And what does that look like? Where's the line between, between compromise and faithfulness? That's the question that the churches were asking. They all had answered it differently. And so the revelation of Jesus is exactly that. He's showing himself to the churches and saying, this is what faithfulness looks like for you in the midst of the culture where you are. So throughout this book, we're going to be asking a lot of those same questions. Okay, we understand what was going on in the first century. We understand their context. But the reality is, I don't have to... Well, and you don't have to as people who don't work in the church, right? You don't have to sacrifice at a pagan temple to be a part of a union, right? You don't have to go with all of your coworkers and offer a sacrifice to your patron God at the beginning of each workday. So what does it mean for us? Like we don't have to deal with those situations anymore. So, So where are we tempted to compromise and what does compromise look like in our culture and and most importantly what does faithfulness look like in our culture yeah no in fact they were probably they were probably house churches right. um mo- yep yeah mostly yeah mo- mostly what you get is and it depends on how many people were in each city. You know, we, again, we get the sense that some of the churches were pretty small, some of them were a little bigger. But we know, for instance, in Corinth, what, what, what Paul's churches in Corinth looked like, and it was basically that some of the wealthier patrons who were homeowners would host gatherings in their homes, and then as many people as could fit in the home would come. But we know from 1 Corinthians that there were several factions, right? And, it, it, and you can imagine, if you didn't particularly like everyone that you went to church with, with which of course we don't have a problem with here, um, then you would probably go to church with the people that you liked, right? You, you would, if you had a choice between going there with a bunch of people that give you weird looks and going here with people that you hang out with all the time, you'd go with your friends, and so uh, that was what was going on in Corinth. That's why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, was because he's saying, oh, you guys got to knock this off, right? Uh, here, there would be similar situations. That, you know, there, there's not going to be a church building that they have. They're going to be meeting in homes. And, again, we don't know how many homes. We don't know how many, any of that. You know, some of these cities, like Ephesus, was enormous for its day. Uh, some of the other ones are only, only exist because Rome needed to put some soldiers there. So they're like, yeah, hey, build a little town and put some soldiers there. And so they just weren't very big towns. Um, and it just kind of depended city by city. But, yeah, you, what you're going to be imagining as you read through this is, you know, groups of people meeting, some of them illegally, you know, depending on how uh, extreme the persecution was in their towns, um, there, and, and just meeting sort of in homes. And So you can imagine passing this letter from house to house to house to house to house and then having to somehow get together and talk about it, right? And Christianity was really young. Yes. I mean, yeah, at this point it's 60 years old. Yeah, really young. Right? So... Right. Good. Any other thoughts, comments, questions? Okay. Uh, so now I want to introduce you to a few ideas that are common to the ancient worldview, things that people in the first century would have understood readily that we uh, just don't think like this anymore. Okay. Uh, so first of all, uh, there was in the ancient world, uh, especially for the earliest Christians, there was no difference in their mind between the nation of Israel and the church. Okay, for, for, for them, and you can see this especially in, in guys like Paul, you know, Paul did not think that he was out to do a new religion. 
Paul thought he was doing Judaism the way God intended Judaism to be done. You know, and, and he even says this. He says, I am the true Israel. And Gentiles are now being brought into the nation of Israel. We're the wild, all, I assume we're all probably Gentiles in here. We're, we're the wild olive tree that's been grafted onto the trunk of Israel. So, so for Paul and for the earliest Christians, Jesus didn't set out to found a new religion. Paul wasn't founding a new religion. They were fulfilling the covenants that God made to Israel. And so when you, when you see throughout the Revelation, there's going to be talk about Israel or the church. For, for, those, for them, those were the same thing. Uh, they didn't see a difference between those two things, and you'll see the concepts used interchangeably because Israel was the people of God, and the church is the people of God, and 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 they use that true Israel language throughout that. And so all they they thought all of the Old Testament promises that God made to Israel those actually apply and find fulfillment in the church, and there were a lot of Jewish people among these congregations who were worshiping, who were gathered, who considered themselves to be doing. Judaism, the way God had always been planning for Judaism to happen, which was finding its fulfillment in Christ. Uh, okay, secondly, uh, this this is a weird one, and you'll sort of just have to see this as we get into it, but uh, they really believed that cosmic events caused earthly events. And so there was this direct kind of correlative Relationship, a causal relationship between the sky and the earth. Uh, you'll see very quickly that stars, they, they've considered stars to be angels, and they, they sort of practiced everyone, not just, not just uh, a few different people, but everyone sort of practiced a version of astrology where uh, cosmic things would sort of foretell what was going to be happening on the earth. Uh, an example of this would be we know that Venus is a planet, but the ancient people thought it was a star. They called it the morning star, in fact. And because it's the brightest thing in the sky that's not the sun or the moon, if you wanted to praise a ruler, if you wanted to get brownie points with a king or a queen, you could give them the title of morning star because the morning star, being the brightest thing in the night sky, was the most powerful angel or the most powerful being. So by attributing that title to this this ruler, you were basically saying that they were the most powerful thing and whatever was going on with the morning star, that you know, that was them and they were powerful. Um, you'll see a lot of this, especially as we get into the, the latter half of the book. There's a lot of stuff happening in the sky that then causes things to happen on the earth. And you, you'll see the uniquely Christian spin that John puts on that whole worldview. Um, we'll get we'll get to that. Third uh if your Old Testament is a little bit rusty, don't worry. Uh, oh, did you have a question? Oh, okay. Uh, if your Old Testament is rusty, don't worry. There is tons and tons and tons and tons of Old Testament stuff in Revelation. Uh, there are allusions. There are direct quotations. There are things that John lifts right out of one of the prophets and sticks in his vision. So, uh, you know, Daniel has a prophecy about four beasts that come up out of the sea, and John uses that in a unique way. Uh, Zechariah has a prophecy about four horsemen that ride out, and John uses that uh, and adapts that into what we know as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, there are all kinds of things that he's constantly taking from, especially the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Joel. I mean, 
there are several that he they're kind of his go-to his wheelhouse but uh, as we move through this we're going to be going back and looking at these prophets and we'll be asking okay when when isaiah wrote this passage what was isaiah saying about it how is he using it and then what's john doing with it why is he pulling it in at this point and how does that help us understand what's going on in this text uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be fun. I promise. It sounds it sounds weird, but it's cool. When you see some of the stuff, it's just, it's just really really neat. So uh, be aware of that. Uh, fourth, we already talked a little bit about symbolism, but Revelation is is rich in symbolism. And one of the one of the papers that I had you pick up uh, was a a guide, a reading guide. Or I, I think I called it a reading companion. Uh, on the front page. I tried to do my best to outline some of the really, really common symbols that you'll see in Revelation. Uh, first, I started with numerology. I, maybe it's because they didn't have TV, but people in the ancient world loved playing with numbers. Okay, uh, how, Are you all familiar with Pompeii? It was the, the city that was covered by the volcano. What was cool about it was it was covered so quickly that nothing had time to decay. So they've actually, when they've gone in and uncovered the city, they've actually found a, a ton of graffiti on the walls. Apparently, the ancient world was lousy with graffiti, and we just have no idea because everything that's exposed, it's all gone. But one of the pieces of graffiti that was really interesting was uh, someone wrote... I love her whose number is, and then it was like, you know, 187 or something, you know, whatever the number was. But what they, what they loved to do was take, you know, each, just like we, I'm sure some of us did this as kids, like, you know, have an alphabet code, like A is 1, B is 2, C is 3, D is 4, and then they would add up and find out the number of their name. So you could just add up the letters in your name and find out what your number was, and then they would do all kinds of stuff like that. So I'm sure that that caused quite a scandal at Pompeii High School trying to figure out which girls added up to 187 and, you know, all of that. So, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but they, I mean, really, they did. You, if it's on graffiti, you know, that this is just something everyone just liked to do, and it was fun to play with numbers, and Revelation loves, 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 loves to play with numbers. So you're going to see, you're going to get very practiced at looking at a number and kind of calling to mind what that what that number represents. And the chart that I gave you here gives you an idea of what some of the common uses of these numbers are. And it's, these really aren't exclusive to Revelation. You'll see a lot of this stuff going clear back into some of the things in the Old Testament. So, um, you know, the number two almost always represents the church or Israel. Again, those were the same thing in an ancient person's mind. Um, you know, for a lot of reasons, the, the Israel had two offices. It was to be a king, kings and priests. Uh, the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. I mean, there's, there's lots of things that made that fit. Uh, the number three was the spiritual world, the cosmic world, the world because uh, there were three levels. There was heaven, earth, and the underworld. It also eventually in Christian thought came to represent God or the, because of the Trinity. Uh, we're going to come back to three and a half. The number four was the created order or the earth. You know, you think about the four corners of the earth or the four cardinal directions, right? I mean, that's, you see the number four, you just start thinking the world. Uh, the number six, well, let's skip number six. Too. Number seven is the number of perfection, which in, in the biblical, see, we think today of perfection as completely without flaws, um, like something that is pure is the way we'd maybe think about it. But in the ancient world, uh, perfection meant finished or completed, Okay, so it's something. So, so the the reason that the creation is not finished till the seventh day. It's 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 uh, even though everything's finished and per- perfected, sort of on the sixth day, there's this final day of finishing of rest that actually finishes or completes the creation week. Uh, there's not a ton of difference in those two ideas, but the, a little bit that it's noteworthy. So the number six, it's not quite seven. 
right? It's not quite finished and whole and complete. So the number six ends up being the number of humanity uh, because just like humans are the pinnacle of creation, but we're not God, you know, we're, we're up there, but we're not, we're not there. Uh, and then the number three and a half is the number of incompletion because it's, it's half of seven. So like there's a place in Revelation where uh, these two guys are doing stuff and they do it for 1,260 days. And you're like, what? Huh? Well, if you do the math, because Revelation loved to play with numbers, because everyone back then loved to play with numbers, that's three and a half years. And you're like, oh, okay, there's three and a half showed up again, right? There's another place where it says it's time, time, and half a time. Or time times and half a time. And you're like, what is it? Uh, but then you plug the three and a half and you're like, oh, okay, okay. And you start to see. And, and again, these things are sort of intentionally ambiguous because I, I think I think it's just because John wanted you to have fun with all of this stuff. I mean, it really it really does become kind of a fun thing to do. It, it, it's a really engaging way to read the text. And you're, you're going to be whispering to people like, do you think it could be this? And they're like, oh, I don't know. I was kind of thinking this. You kind of start going back and forth about it. And it's, it's just a really... I mean, fun. That's the only word for it. It's fun. I, you know, I think we could have fun with this book, <laughs> and that's okay. <laughs> so um, it doesn't have to be scary. It can just be fun. So you'll see that with the numbers, especially. And you'll, you'll, you know, uh, in a couple weeks, we get to the number twenty-four. And you'll be like, okay, so that's supposed to be—is that supposed to be twelve times two, or is it supposed to be four times six, or is it supposed to be eight times three? Like, what, what's this twenty-four doing in here? And how? And, and we'll get into a big argument about it. It'll, it'll, it'll be fun. Don't worry about it. Uh, we'll get there. Um, the number 10 is another number that represents wholeness, but this is with a sense of like totality, like allness. Um, 10 gets multiplied by itself and by other numbers a lot. So uh, you'll see 10 times 10. You'll see like thousands and hundreds and things like that. And again, that's when you multiply a number, you, you give an emphasis, right? So if 10 is wholeness or allness, then 10 times 10 times 10 is like all allness, like really a lot of allness. Um, and again, you'll, you'll see all of this. It'll make sense. We'll, we'll keep coming back to this and practicing it over and over and over. And then 12 also represents the church or Israel. You know, you've got 12 disciples. You've got 12 tribes. You've got 12 is a very people of God number. So that's not it's particularly surprising. Uh, there's some other really good common symbols that you'll see a lot. And we'll get to start playing with these next week. Anytime you see the right the right hand or the right side or, or any right anything, that's that's authority. Uh, basically, the ancient world was, was non-literate, pre-literate, however you want to say it, illiterate. And in an illiterate culture, the way you signed contracts more or less was with a handshake. And so the right, and you always did it with your right hand for reasons that are gross, but you, you your right hand was the hand of, of authority. And so when anytime you see the right side of the body mentioned in the Bible, it's not actually just talking about the right side of your body. It's really talking about the seat of, author- of, of human will and volition and authority. Okay, I, The eyes and the heart are the realm of the body that includes like knowing, seeing, willing, judging, these kinds of things. Uh, the hands and the feet are the behavior and the activities. Color, the color white. We think of white as purity or, again, of like uh, sort of like unspoiledness, like, you know, women wear white on their wedding days and these things like that. But in the ancient world, white represented victory. So a conquering army would come back and they do a big victory parade for, through the town and they would wear white. And sort of the symbolic idea was we are such excellent warriors that we went to battle in these white garments and we didn't even get them dirty. And, you know, again, everyone knew that that's not actually what happened, it was, but it was symbolic. It was a big, it was sort of like a rah-rah, you know, like you know, you've all been in parades. So uh, that's what white symbolized, okay? And then red is actually hasn't changed. It's the color, color, color of war, uh, right? Mars, God of Roman god of war, red planet, all of that. So 
Some miscellaneous ones, stars are angels. Lampstands represent Israel in the church is drawn from Zechariah 4. Olive tree is Israel in the church drawn from Zechariah 4. So you're already seeing there's a bunch of Old Testament stuff going on. Horns are symbols of power or authority. Uh, a crown, now these are fun. There's some different, and, and I put this in your reading companion, there's some different words that are used for crowns. Some of your translations use different words for them. Some of them just call them crowns, but there are two different things. One was the thing that a king wore, and one was essentially what you would give an athlete at the end if they won. We would give them a gold medal today. They gave them a little wreath. There was like a crown that they would wear. And in Greek, those are two different words. The, the kings wore diadems. Diademos is the Greek word. Okay, a diadem. And the athletes were given stephanos, okay, or which was like the wreath thing. And in Revelation, it uses the two Greek words differently. A lot of times the English translations just translate them as crowns, and they mean two different things, right? The diadem means ruler authority, like you would expect it to mean. Right? Kinghood, monarchy. Uh, and then the, the stephanos, or uh, the, the wreath, meant victory like just like a gold medal would mean for us today you know if you saw someone if you read a story and someone's waving a gold medal you'd be like oh they won something right okay so that so uh as we get to those places in the texts when those words are used uh we'll talk about that so you don't need to worry about it and maybe you have the translations that make it different anyway or maybe you have footnotes that tell about it or something so um fire or flame is a symbol of the holy spirit so we even what even what we just read in here was the we saw that it was in the name of the one who is and who was and who is to come and the seven spirits that are before the throne are uh, yeah the seven was that seven spirits yeah uh, so you'll see a lot of times that the that the flame is used to represent the Holy Spirit and then uh, sackcloth is repentance which is again a, a good old faithful Old Testament thing so um, this reading companion keep with you stick it somewhere safe uh, there's tons and tons of background information in here. Uh, so we'll be referring to it to talk about, to help us round out some of our pictures of what what would be assumed knowledge in an ancient culture. Sort of like today, if someone from China or Brazil was trying to read those political cartoons and they were like, why are they talking elephants and donkeys? We'd be like, oh, well, yeah, you probably don't know that the Republicans use an elephant and the Democrats use a donkey. Yeah, I can see how, like, that's assumed knowledge for us. We didn't have to say it out loud. We all just knew it. But if a foreigner came into our culture, we'd have to explain it. So this is helping us explain some of those things that to an ancient person would have been sort of common knowledge. And then, oh, the last thing I want to talk about was the imperial cult a little bit more. So, uh, again, Rome, the, the ancient Roman Empire, primarily a non-literate society. You're probably talking about maybe like 10% of the population that could read at all. And then a much smaller percentage than that that could like really read really well. I mean, most of the people who could read it all, they could just sort of like read and write well enough to write receipts and to make sure they weren't getting ripped off when they were buying and selling. Uh, if you're talking about like a really good technical command of a language that's good enough to read and write things like what we get in the scriptures, a very, very small percentage of people could actually do that. And so the main way that Rome communicated was with visual propaganda, uh, sort of like what like our advertising industry is today, right? Very little of our advertising is print. Most of it is pictures because pictures are way easier to convince people with. So what you'll see over and over and over uh, in Roman propaganda is Rome itself, the empire and the city and the, the idea of Roman rule represented as a woman, uh, usually the goddess Roma. 
And then she has, like, so here, you got, this is one of the most famous reliefs of her that we still have. You know, she has these two babies that she's cuddling with her, Romulus and Remus, and then she's surrounded by all of this opulent. There's, like, just basically so much food that she doesn't even know what to do with it all. And it's just this great picture of luxury and opulence and, and enoughness. And, and the not-so-subtle communication that is being sent is you really, really want to be on Rome's side because, I mean, look, look at all that they have. And so the way that Rome enforced that, again, was through this imperial cult. And so the Caesars, the different Caesars would uh, create images of themselves and they would have people worship those images. Uh, on, uh, over here is a coin that was from Nero's rule. So on one side of it, you can see a bust of Nero. And then it says some stuff about Nero on the side. And then on the back side of it, I don't know how well you can make it out, but that's actually another representation of Roma. And it even says Roma right at the bottom of the picture. So she's, again, seated, kind of leaned back, all relaxed-like on her throne. Uh, this is what those early Christians would have seen and experienced every day of their life. Anytime they went out, anytime they were to market, anytime they were in any kind of business transaction, they were constantly assaulted with the message that Rome is in control, that Rome runs the universe, and that if you don't do what Rome says, there are some pretty nasty consequences. And so... So we're going to be talking then about how the scriptures interact with that. And the, part of the reason I suspect that Revelation is so visual is because it, it needs to give us better pictures uh, than these. And so we'll maybe get into a little bit of talking about what the pictures are that we consume today and how the Revelation offers us uh, better pictures than what we are consuming in our culture. Okay, so a little bit about the structure of the book. Uh, first, chapters 1 through 3, you get seven letters to seven churches, just like what John was told to write down, right? Take notes, send this message to the seven churches. So it's pretty straightforward, and that's what we're going to read for next week. Each of the letters follows the pattern. You'll pick it up really quickly. Uh, and this gives us really all of the this, – this sets the stage. It tells us what the stakes are. It paints a good picture of what's going on. So we're going to spend a lot of time next week on each of these churches and talking about what, what they were like and what their problems were, what their successes were. Uh, it, it's pretty cool. You'll start to say, oh, I know churches like that. Or you're like, I don't want to admit it, but that hits a little bit too close to home. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's really interesting to see that in 2,000 years, there's not much has changed. <laughs> then in chapters 4 through 11, we get the first uh, vision scene where John is taken up into heaven. right? He's uh, on that otherworldly journey of the apocalypse and then he's he's so he's taken behind the curtain and then we see that it's constantly jumping from that point in this next section back and forth between what's happening behind the scenes in heaven and what we can see happening on earth and it'll go back to up to behind the scenes in heaven and and then it'll go back down and we'll see what's happening on earth and it'll back back up behind the scenes in heaven and then back down to what's happening and then back up in, and so it'll just keep bouncing back and forth like that and we'll see how God is working behind the scenes to bring about the rescue and the redemption of his people it's cool. And then finally, uh, the, re the last half-ish of the book is this huge cosmic war that's played out not only in the heavens, but then especially, specifically uh, on earth uh, between God and Satan. And so we get to talk about that. We get to see all of what's going on in there. And there's some really, really cool stuff there, too. So, so that's the that's the basic structure of the book. Uh, I did give you the little half sheet that I asked you to pick up is a reading schedule and a schedule of the class. 
So today was the introduction. We'll go ahead and finish chapter one here in a second. Then next week, we'll talk about the seven letters to the seven churches. So that's chapters two and three. And then we'll begin uh, the throne room vision in September. And we'll do that. That'll take us three weeks. Then we'll do the war in heaven. And uh, on Halloween, our church is doing a community activity here. And Halloween falls on a Wednesday. And so we're doing, uh, we're having no Wednesday night classes and activities and stuff like that. And we're all doing uh, like trunks and rock walls and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, so if you come here on, on Halloween, cool, but we won't be in here. So, uh, and then we'll have two classes left after Halloween because the calendar is crazy this year and Thanksgiving is like the third week of November. So we won't have class the week of Thanksgiving and then there'd only be one more week after that. So we may have a revelation themed party for anyone who wants to come back for one week after Thanksgiving and someone can make dragon cookies or something like that. I don't know. Um, It'll be fun. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll close up. I, really, my, my hope is to have some really good time each week to do application and talk about that kind of stuff. But also then at the end, I'd, I'd really like to have some time for us to talk about, you know, what does it look like to, to uh, embrace the, the message of the revelation today in, in our church and in our culture? Uh, because I think there's a lot of really powerful application in here. So any questions about the schedule or the structure? If not, I want to conclude with actually reading some more of Revelation then. So let's talk about the revelation of Jesus Christ. So essentially what's happened so far, John is, has been worshiping. It's Sunday, and he is, he is gathered in spirit with his, with his churches, even though he can't be with them bodily because he is uh, in exile because of his position in the church. And so he's worshiping, and he hears a voice behind him say, I've got a message for you for your churches. I need you to write it down and send it to them. And so then beginning in verse 12, here's what happens. He says, Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. See, numbers and symbols right out of the box. And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white as wool. And whites as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Which I'm not sure what that means. Uh, in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp, two edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full force. When I saw him, I understandably fell at his feet as though dead. So here's the first glimpse that John gets of his otherworldly mediator who's bringing him this revelation, right? And it's this completely crazy, almost hard. I mean, so what I've done is I've pulled up three different, I told you, Google image search. I, I typed in Revelation 1, verse 12, and here's what I got. Several different hits. Uh, so you can see people who have been trying to represent this picture, this image of Jesus, uh, the the middle one is actually an ancient uh, an ancient icon from the church, uh, but y- you can see the problem the problem with this is it's really hard to actually represent this in any sort of real way. Like the images sort of clash with each other, and how do you, you know you have this guy with a sword coming out of his mouth, but he's talking and sounds like water, and his hair's on fire or something, and 
his eyes are on fire and his hair is white and his feet are bronze and there's lampstands and, you know, what, what's going on? <laughs> and so you have all the, it's, it's really fun to kind of look at all of the different ways people have tried to draw this and the pictures only get crazier as we move into the book. But uh, you, you can see that uh, how visual and how striking all of this is. And, and John is completely overwhelmed and he falls down uh, as though dead. And uh, then it says, but he, this figure, he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and I see. I am alive forever. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, write what you have seen, what is, and what is to take place after this. And then these few, these moments that we're about to have are few and far between in the Revelation, so they are precious to us. He actually does the hard work of interpreting for us. Okay? He says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We're like, oh, thank you very much, big cosmic Jesus. That is super super helpful as we begin to move into talking about this text. Okay? So let's have a little, we've got, we've got a few minutes left. Uh, let's have a little bit of fun with this. There are, for now, there are no right answers. We're just going to practice. Um, let's talk about some of the images that we see in these verses about Jesus. What, what are some of the phrases or the characteristics that stick out to you? And what do you think they might mean? Again, there's totally no right answers. Just, we'll, we'll just try. We'll figure some stuff out. Uh, looking through the, that 12 through uh, 12 through 19 about the description of Jesus, what are some of the things that stick out to you, some of the characteristics or the attributes, and, and what do you think they might mean? He was comforting. Like he wasn't angry. Like when he said, uh, do not be afraid. Okay. I'm the first and the last. Like, wanted to help. Yeah, good. Okay. When they said he had white hair and then the, the symbols, white is victory, mm-hmm. like victory over death. Yeah. Good. Sure. Yeah. What is that? Two edged sword coming out of his mouth. Well, they refer to the word or the Bible as the mm-hmm. two edged sword, the mm-hmm. scriptures. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's the scriptures coming out of Christ's mouth. Would that make sense? That the scriptures come from Jesus' mouth? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we call it the word of God, right? I mean, the words. Words from God. So, yeah, and actually, uh, so Mike is referencing a verse in Hebrews that says that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so this was something now, the the writer of Revelation probably did not have access to Hebrews, okay? So that doesn't, he's not quoting Hebrews here necessarily, but what it shows us is that this is a common way that the early Christians spoke about uh, the word of God. Okay, this is this is a common symbol. It's like, oh yeah, it makes sense. Actually, you see a lot of the same kind of imagery in the Gospel of John, also. So this idea that that this sword and and this will be a super important symbol, way 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 at the end of the class. Okay, so like file it somewhere important or somewhere safe so you can pull it back out. But this idea, and you'll see it, we'll see it again next week as well. But this idea that what's coming out of Jesus's mouth is the word of God. 
and it's a sword. Okay? Good. We'll, we'll play with it. We'll play, play with some more next week. What else? Some other stuff. You guys are doing great. The white robe and the <coughs> gold sash. Okay. Something like, I don't know, you think of royalty yeah. or king. Yep. Or Good. Yep. What else? No one wants to tackle the feet like burnished bronze? I figured we'd all love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's okay. That's kind of representative of God back in Mount Sinai. I mean, the volume was so loud, people just fell down and yeah, yeah. Later in Revelation, uh, he'll be described as a voice of thunders. It sounds like thunder too. So it's just that idea of like big and booming and and it is interesting, um, Adam. Back to what you noted. Uh, e- even though this is like such a, a terror-inducing tech, I mean, like you read this and it's just like you try to picture yourself there, and you and John, you'd be like ducking for cover too, you know. But like, it, but that's not the spirit that Jesus offers. You know, instead he puts his hand, his right hand, on. John's shoulder, and he says, hey, man, get up. you got to write some stuff. Right? Uh, many, many more times later in the book, John will be with some angels, and something will happen, and he'll fall down like trying to worship the angels, and the angels will be like, no, get up. You, I'm, I'm, I'm not who you should be worshiping, but here, Jesus is like, you're doing the right thing, but go ahead and get up. <laughs> so, yeah, and something else? Yes, that brings up your eyes. What do you think that represents where it's... Yeah, absolutely. Yep. 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 Also, how how are we purified in the Christian life, right? By the Spirit's work within us, by that purifying fire of the Spirit at work in us. So, yeah, very good. What else? See, this is fun. Uh, play with this with me a little bit. We have the seven lampstands, which are the seven churches. Okay, so can that be more than just the seven churches, the seven physical churches, of, based on the number seven? What else could it also be? The whole church. Yeah, yeah, the whole church. So the, again, it's interesting that a letter written to just these seven physical churches at the end of the first century is something that we put in our scriptures. And that we experience the work of the Holy Spirit through. It's because it wasn't really just for those seven churches, right? I mean, it was really for the whole church. Otherwise, it wouldn't be in our scriptures. It would be like Paul's letter to the Laodiceans. Okay, probably had some good stuff to say. Paul's a smart dude, but it obviously wasn't for us or we would have it. So so there's a sense in which that number seven kind of clues us in like, oh, there is something else going on here. Okay, There, there is something bigger than, than just what's happening at these seven churches historically. This isn't, this isn't just a history class, in other words, right? So were you going to add something as well? Well, I was going to say the, the tie-in to this vision of, of uh, the bronze, et cetera, you have to go back to the last vision of Daniel. Good, yeah, talk about that a little bit. Uh, his face will flash like lightning, his eyes flame 
torches. His arms and feet shone like polished bronze, and his wounds rolled like a vast multitude of people. Virtually similar in scripture. Yes. Very good. An interesting tie in mm-hmm. the leap from Daniel to the Yeah. That's, that is a great observation. That's a great example of what we're going to see over and over and over throughout this series is uh, John's using these what are very familiar images to these Jewish Christians, right, who, who have these, these scriptures memorized, right? So they would have seen this picture of Jesus and been like, oh, yeah, that's Daniel 10. So then a, an interesting next step to ask, and we, maybe this can be our homework, would be what was going on in Daniel 10 and what was that vision all about and how does that inform us about what's going on in, in here? You know, what is, uh, what is John presenting to us? that he's drawing from Daniel 10. So, good. Thank you. That was an excellent observation. So what's the bronze feet? I don't know for sure. Uh, yeah, Katie. Oh, I was just maybe like, he's done his appointment or he's done his intention. Okay. His intention to, to, he's confident in his path. Mm-hmm. Confident in what he's now taking the role. It could be, yeah. I th- in, and uh, does anyone know the, in Daniel, he has the vision of uh, Nebuchadnezzar? And the statue, I think he has bronze feet in that, and that's like the only part of him that didn't get broken or something like that. I'd have to go back and read that. What's that? Oh, his feet were clay? Okay. A mixture of clay So, see, see, here we go. This, this is what we're going to be doing all the time. Like, oh, okay, we're... But, so, um, what we're going to do with this vision, and what you'll see, I don't... Mm, we're going to come back. We'll, we'll start here next week because I, I was about to give away the secret bonus question for next week. Um, here's, here's what we're going to do for next week. Uh, go ahead and read chapters 1 through 3. Here's the deal. You're reading Revelation, and the whole reason you came to this class is because Revelation is confusing. You've only had one week of it. It's still going to be confusing this week. Please don't get frustrated. Uh, please just sort of accept from the outset that you're going to get better at this as you practice it more. Okay? Um, Maybe have a class study buddy that you can read and discuss it with. Uh, you know, you can, I don't know, meet Sunday or something, whatever. But go ahead and read chapters 1 through 3. This is some of, the, some of the easier reading in the book because we're dealing with letters to churches. And so even though there's still some symbolism, even though there's still some weird stuff going on, uh, you can also get a decent sense of what's happening in the church. So read through it. Feel free to experiment with some of the uh, symbolism and just try to like jot some notes down about it as you're reading through it. Here's a few questions that I have them on your sheet. Um, what stands out to you as you're reading through it? What are some things that you you just find particularly noteworthy? There doesn't have to be a reason. You can just find them interesting for the sake of the fact that they're interesting. Uh, and then I'm curious what you think is the most confusing and what you think is the clearest. Okay. And again, there's no right or wrong answers. I'm just just curious, and it's a good way to help you read. You should be confused. At some of this stuff, it's okay if you are. If if uh, if God does not give you stone tablets with the interpretation carved on them, and you, you can't bring them here next week, that's okay. Um, no one's expecting that. So if you do, though, I'm super impressed. Uh, <laughs> and then here's your bonus. Uh, what if you can figure this out? It's it's fun. And this is what I was about to tell you, but I want to. I'll wait till next week to tell you. And it gets back to your question about the bronze feet. Uh, what connection do you notice between chapter one and the seven letters? Okay, there, there's there's a cool thing that John does between the seven letters in chapter one, and if you if you don't get it, it's okay. It's it's a little bit obscure, but it's really cool. And if you don't get it, we're going to talk about it next week anyway. So, but if you uh, if you just knock out the other three questions so fast and you get it all interpreted and you're done and you have some free time, uh, you can maybe figure out chew on that question a little bit. So. 
Uh, are there any final thoughts, final questions, final ideas this week? Yeah. Hope, hopefully day after is my goal. Uh, maybe not till Friday. It depends. Usually, super interesting, geeky stuff. Usually once you submit something to iTunes, it takes a full day to be up. So if I don't get it tonight, it would be Friday. So. Uh, yeah, you should be able to search iTunes for it as well. Um, I'll put it under Beaver Creek Nazarene Revelation or something like that. I can. Uh, I'll figure out a way and let you guys all know the best that I can. Um, so, yeah, because that's my, my, my hope is that this will be a way that you can, if you do have to miss a week or something like that, um, hopefully you don't just go home and only download podcasts because we would miss you and your input here. So you would be cheating all of your fellow classmates and cheating me out of your input and your ideas as well. So hopefully uh, you only miss when it's super urgent and necessary. Uh, <laughs> anyway, good. Any other questions? Any other thoughts? Okay, I'd like to pray for us then, and then we can uh, head our separate ways. God, thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to gather and study your scriptures. And we ask as we begin this difficult journey through a challenging book that you would give us a lot of grace and a lot of wisdom and a lot of discernment. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be working in us as we read this text, both throughout the week and when we gather here, that you would, uh, that you would give us insight. And, and most importantly, that as we read this text, it would become clearer and clearer to us what it means uh, to look more like Jesus. Uh, we ask that your Holy Spirit will be working in us to refine us, to purify us, to show us uh, where we compromise with our culture and what it means to uh, what it means to be faithful to you. And that's what we want: is to be more faithful today than we were yesterday. And but by the end of the study, that we would see ways that we can choose to be more faithful to you uh, by then than than we are right now. And so we ask all of these things uh, in the name of your Son Jesus. Uh, thanks, everyone. This was the boring introduction week, so next week we will actually be pretty much hip-deep in Revelation 2 and 3. So uh, thank you all for coming. I really appreciate it, and uh, I will see you all probably Sunday. So have a good week.